0: Once upon a time, there was a Chinese farmer. The farmer had a favorite horse, his prized black stallion. His horse helped him to work the fields, to raise the crop, to earn money, to feed his family. One morning, someone left the stable door open and the old man's horse ran away. Everyone in the community heard about the tragedy and all of his close friends came around in the evening and said, You've lost your favorite horse. Your livelihood. This is so terrible." The farmer looked at them and said, Maybe. In the absence of his horse, the old Chinese farmer just kept farming despite life's agonies and adversities. Three weeks later, his beloved black stallion returned with seven wild horses galloping behind. The community hears the good fortune and all of his close friends came around in the evening and said, Your favorite horse returned. And he brought with him seven wild mares. Now you have eight horses. What a, what a wonderful turn of events. The farmer looked at them and said, Maybe. The farmer had two passions in life, his horse and his son. A week later, his son is trying to tame one of the wild horses, and it bucks him. He falls off and breaks his leg in three places. Everyone in the community found out, and all of his close friends came around in the evening and said, Oh, no. I can't believe this happened. This is terrible news. What a sad event." The Chinese farmer looked at them and said, Maybe. The next day, the king announced war on a neighboring nation and the king sent conscription officers out to every little village to force every able-bodied young man into the Chinese army. The draft officers came around but rejected his son because he had a broken leg. The neighbors see the officials leave without the sun and all of his close friends came around in the evening and said, What incredible fortune. Because of the broken leg, he's escaped the draft. What a wonderful turn of events. The Chinese farmer looked at them and said, Maybe. The moral of the story is that you never know what will be the consequences of bad fortune or what will be the consequences of good fortune. Your bad days may very well end up being your good days, and your good days may very well end up being your bad days. This is is an earthly parable on how a Chinese farmer dealt with life's agonies and adversities. But we need heavenly instruction on how to face life's agonies and adversities. The author's goal in today's text is to encourage those of you facing adversity to trust in the sovereignty of God. To trust him not only when your horse runs away, but when your spouse runs away, when your money runs away, when your good fortune runs away. Adversity comes to all of us, whether it's in the form of a leg broken in three places, or a child broken emotionally, or a friendship broken painfully. We find in the text eight helps to master the art of living with life's agonies and adversities. Help number one is this. God has named and known everything you will face in life. Now, we've reached the end of chapter 6, which is where Hebrew scholars believe is the halfway point in Solomon's journal. And he began his journal in a dark space. He's been writing quite a bit about the randomness of world events, about the emptiness of earthly routines, about the vanity of life's everyday rhythms. But he seemed to come out of that dark place now with lessons for you for when you face the darkness the adversity the randomness of life and he begins by saying in verse 10 whatever has come to be has already been named Solomon says you need to realize that whatever agonies or adversities have come to you they have already been named if you remember in your creation history God begins naming things he named the light Day. He named the dark night. He named the expanse heaven. The dry land under the expanse he named earth. The water under the expanse he named sea. Uh, On and on. And the creation, creation account goes and goes with God naming his creation. To give a name to something is to make it exist. When God named your adversity before your adversity existed, it's another way of saying that they owe their being to the command of God. Life's randomness has already been predetermined by God. Let's carry this naming theme further in Genesis. God created animals, but God gave Adam permission to name all the animals. But Adam's God-given task to name all the animals was bigger than just naming them. Naming them showed that Adam had dominion over them, control over them. Naming in the ancient world carried a sense of authority over something or someone. Remember when the Babylonians changed the names of Daniel and his three friends. That earthly kingdom wanted to show authority over them. Remember when God changed Abram's name to Abraham, Sarai's name to Sarah, Jacob's name to Israel. Even in the New Testament, Jesus will give Simon a name, Peter. What's he doing? He's exercising his lordship over Peter's life. By God naming whatever has come to be in your life, whether it's a a runaway stallion or a broken leg, he's showing that he has dominion over over it, control over it, God controls your agonies and adversities for his good purposes. God has dominion over your times of adversity. You may say, well, well Kyle, it doesn't specifically say that God is the one naming the adversity in verse 10. Well, that's kind of true and kind of not true. In the Hebrew construction of this verse, we have what is called a divine passive. It's used to refer to God. Whatever's happened in your life, whatever's happened, it took place under the creative authority of God. Solomon continues in verse 10. It is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Remember Job tried to argue with the creative authority of God? Everyone who argues with God ends up regretting it. Job repented in dust and ashes. Church, we live on promises. We don't live on explanations. That's what helped Job through the loss of his business, his friends, and his children. We submit to the words of Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Who art thou? To talk back to God. Help number two. Learn to love the fact that God and his events elude your control. Learn to love the fact that God and his events elude your control. You may be thinking, well, I can see how the agonies and adversities in the life of that Chinese farmer worked out for his good. But I can't see it in my life. His adversity was good for him. My adversity is not good for me. Well, Solomon has a word for you. Verse 12, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? (laughs) Who knows what is good for man? Make that a capital W. God knows. Solomon is using a rhetorical question. He wants to emphasize that your agonies and adversities are solidly secure in God's hands. Now, I, I know you wish life's events could could be in your hands and then you could dole them out as you pleased. But, but your life's events are in God's hands and He doles them out as He pleases. You cannot escape your limitations. Learn to love the fact that you're limited in this way. Any control you think you have over your life is simply an illusion. Rest my friends in this truth. Whatever is happening right now on your Chinese farm Is taking place under the caring sovereignty of God. Help number three. God intends for you to learn from sad events, not run from them. God intends for you to learn from sad events, not run from them. Alan Watts. That's the name of the Brit who popularized the story of the Chinese farmer. Some say he was one of the first to interpret Eastern wisdom for a Western audience. He wanted to use stories like this and he did use stories like this to teach Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism. Remember how did the Chinese farmer always respond when his friend said an event was good or either an event was bad? Always the same response, maybe. In other words, never get too high, never get too low. Don't allow any situation to get you too elevated or brought too low. Now that sounds a bit like a stoic. Christianity is not stoicism. Christianity invites you to mourn during your agonies and adversities. To fully fill the hurts of earth. Christianity doesn't promise to make life free from agonies. It aims to make life bearable in adversity. In fact, it it seems that God teaches in these next four verses that you deeply need to experience the adversity in order to live life well. He begins his argument in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. This verse begins a a long list, a a series of opposites, a series of contrasts, a series of comparisons. And Solomon does it continually using the words good and better. Solomon seems to reverse our likes and dislikes. Naturally, I'm, I'm bent to say that the day of birth is better than the day of death. But Solomon tells me differently. In a game of this and that, I always choose this. And Solomon says, you should have chosen that. The first comparison is that a good name is better than precious ointment. Solomon is telling his readers that inner character is more crucial than outer fragrance. Good cologne doesn't cover up bad character. Some of you have, have teenagers. They think Axe body spray covers up a lot. <laughs> not character flaws. God's developing your character through life's agonies and adversities. In hard seasons, don't spend so much time on externals. Give the proper time to internals. Jewelry and clothing shouldn't be your top priority. It is in these hard seasons of life that God begins to work deeply on your soul. Solomon goes on to tell us that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Literally, it is more good. If you're from the south... It's gooder. (laughs) The day of death is gooder than the day of birth. Now this seems backward, upside down, counterintuitive. A coffin is better than a bassinet? A casket is better than a baby crib? He further develops his argument in verse 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. What? It's better to go to a funeral home than a wedding reception? Now, why is it better to stand by death than to feast with friends? Because every grave is a sermon to the soul. It's a reminder, as Solomon says, that this is the end of all mankind. It's a reminder that your prostate is growing cancerous. Your arteries are turning to chalk. Your brain cells are dying by the millions. When you attend a funeral, it gives you perspective. When you go to a funeral, no one's talking about political parties, or football games, or gas prices. All of a sudden, everything gets boiled down to what matters. Why? Why do you avoid talking about death? Why do you avoid funeral homes? Why do you run to places of feasting? Well, because you can escape life's agonies by only going to places of feasting. You're an escapist living in denial that one day you too will die. The shallow person never gets past the party life. Everything's a good time. They will never become people of depth because they refuse to contemplate death. Martin Luther, the reformer said it is good for us. It is good for us to invite death into our presence when it is still at a distance. Walk to a wedding. Run to a funeral. The author here is really contrasting pleasure and sorrow. uh, Feasting and funeral. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Funerals help us to number our days. The reality of death should reshape your goals. It should cause you to set new priorities. Solomon continues to unpack his argument in verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. You live in a certain culture, and you can't help but, in some ways, to be affected by that culture. We live in a culture where we celebrate our wins publicly and mourn our losses privately. There are appropriate times to feel sorrow, to lament. You learn a lot by learning to lament. You learn what to do with your shame, your failure, your hurt. There are large sections of the Bible that are straight lament, where people are mourning, crying, processing. Lamenting is a way you transfer your burden to God, your Father. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem and over Lazarus. You say, Kyle, stop that. Stop that. I don't need sorrow. All I need is laughter. Could it be that laughter is your Linus blanket? You attempt to escape life's adversities by drowning them in laughter? Pretending they don't exist? We've all met this guy, right, where everything's a joke. Laughter can be a narcotic that dulls the pain of reality. Not everything can be dealt with with a sense of humor. Only someone who knows how to truly weep knows how to truly laugh. There's there's an Arabic saying all sunshine creates only a desert. All sunshine creates only a desert. The Christian can handle the agonies of life and the adversities of life because he knows Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. She knows Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh later. When you allow yourself to mourn, only then can you receive the comfort Jesus promised to those who mourn. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. The, The house of mourning has become for us a schoolhouse for learning. The author isn't saying use sad things to avoid life. He's saying use sad things to learn life. He's not saying it's better to be sad. He's saying that it's better to engage sadness than to engage in parties in the house of mirth that drown out thoughts about death. Death is the object of a wise man's reflection. Help number four. In dark seasons... You don't need friends who make you sing and dance. You need friends who make you think. Solomon continues here with his little aphorisms, his little proverbs. Notice in verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Let's take a little survey. Uh, How many of you have a friend? Raise your hand if you have a friend. Okay. See somebody that doesn't have their hand raised. Be, be their friend you can choose friends you can choose friends who always affirm you always praise you never challenge you it's easy to be around them it's easy but is it good for you spiritually I feel like a lot of my pastoring is just, is you know telling people don't run with a herd of morons We all have these people that we run to. These are the people who will always defend us, always stick up for us. Those who pat us on the back when we need a punch in the gut. Don't listen to people who just tell you what you want to hear. Listen to those who tell you the truth no matter what. See, there are some agonies and adversities in life that just fall on us from the sovereign hand of God. But there are some agonies and adversities in life that fall on us because we make dumb choices. You need people in your life who will walk up to your face and say, you are the issue. I know you've done this crazy mental gymnastics in your mind where you're not at fault, but you are the problem. This Hebrew word rebuke speaks of rebuking someone. It speaks of correcting behavior patterns that are morally questionable and or detrimental. Greg Ogden says, A rebuke given by a singular wise person is better than a song sung by plural fools. Friends, listening to a godly rebuke of friends could save your soul from some nasty stuff. We can't grow until someone tells us where we are weak. Let's, let's take another little survey here. How many of you look forward to someone rebuking you? Anyone like, I just can't wait. No, no one? No. It's not enjoyable, but it's sanctifying. You can't correct a fool, but you can correct a wise person. Nathan rebuked David over murder and adultery. Paul rebuked Peter over doing something that wasn't in step with the gospel. Eugene Peterson says, You'll get more from a rebuke of a sage than from the song and dance of fools. And He hits him hard in verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. Solomon is using in verse six a literary technique where there's, there's two words in the Hebrew, the, two words in the Hebrew sentence that sound alike. And it doesn't necessarily come across in English, but I think I could translate it in English. Uh, "As the crackling of nettles under the kettles. as the crackling of nettles under the kettles, so is the laugh of a fool." This verse paints a scathing picture of the laughter of fools. In the ancient world, a fire made of thorns was very short-lived. It would flame up quickly, but it would not burn for long. Fools may be laughing now, but they will not laugh forever. He who laughs the loudest may not necessarily laugh the longest. When you're in a dark season, you don't need what you think you need someone always affirming you you may need a friend who traces your dark season back to your dark heart help number next one number 5 help number 5 while farming life's events develop a patient spirit and a present mind in the midst of your agonies and adversities remember verse 8 <laughs> Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now, I don't know what you're waiting on or how long you're waiting. You may be waiting longer than the three weeks of our Chinese farmer. You need to develop a patient spirit, which means avoiding knee-jerk reactions. It means persevering, not quitting or bailing on something or someone too soon. It's better to wait for God's timing than to grow impatient. The long haul, I know we don't like it, but the long haul, the long process is more beneficial for your spiritual walk than the shortcuts. Have you ever prayed for patience? (laughs) Those prayers usually include the words, right now. God, give me patience, right now. Impatient while praying for patience James says, tribulation brings patience. The agonies of life and the adversities of life produce in you a patient spirit. Unless you have the long view, experiencing agonies and adversities will tempt you to become angry and disgruntled. He says this in verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools." (laughs) Anger boomerangs. You, You send it out towards something or someone and it always comes back to lodge in your heart. One of the ways you can tell if you're trusting in God's timing is if you get angry when things don't meet your timetable. Anger expresses your exasperation at the perplexities of life. Better to let God's sovereignty do its thing Then spend your days in endless anger. Solomon gives a a hypothetical question in verse 10. Actually, people that are in adversity typically ask this question. Say not, why were the former former days better than these? (laughs) For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I like that phrase, it's not from wisdom. In other words, that's a dumb question. When you're in adversity, you tend to live in the past. Oh, remember remember when we had that black stallion to do all the work around here? Remember when we had that other set of hands from my son to help around the farm? You cannot move forward by looking backward. Well, things just aren't like they used to be. So... You look back on the old days with nostalgia. Nostalgia, looking back on the old days, it's all in the Bible. Some Israelites made this mistake in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. The old-timer said the second temple wasn't nearly as beautiful as the first. Solomon, the author of, of this book, built the first. Nostalgia is a form of escapism. It's taking a vacation to the past instead of grappling with the present. Grappling with the unpleasant agonies and adversities of today. By the way, the past was never as good as your mind tells you it was. Pining about the good old days. It's like you're plowing. But you can't plow straight because you're always looking back. I feel like Jesus told a a parable about that. I, I miss, I miss when things were like this at the church. I miss when my kids were younger. I miss when our country was like this. The older we get, the better the past looks. We all tend to airbrush the past. The older I get, the better I was at basketball. It's a combination of a a bad memory and a good imagination. Do you remember God's people? (laughs) Do you remember God's people even complaining about no longer being POWs in Egypt? I miss making those bricks. I miss those three square meals a day. You, 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 You miss slavery? That was the good old days for you? Someone said and I think rightly, I wish there was a way you could know you were living in the good old days before they pass you by. The only true good old days were in the Garden of Eden. And that's where God is taking us who are blood bought. Help number six. Wisdom and money can help you avoid a lot of sad events. But they can't totally eliminate sad events. Verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Now the word inheritance refers to lands passed down from generation to generation. In agricultural societies land meant food, security, stability. It meant you could survive in times of adversity. Money and wisdom can at some extent protect people from hardship. Wisdom can prevent bad choices and their repercussions. Money in a famine can safeguard you. Solomon says, verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Money can buy you a good attorney. Money can buy you a refrigerator when it goes out. Wisdom and money both offer certain forms of protection and shelter. But wisdom and money can never achieve the kind of control over your life that you think it can. George Strait, worth, voice like mine, maybe you've heard him. George Strait, worth $300 million. But that money couldn't protect his precious little daughter from dying in a car crash. Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant men to ever live, IQ of 160, But that worldly wisdom couldn't protect him from ALS which ravaged his body and eventually took his life. Wisdom and money can help you avoid a lot of sad events, but they can't totally eliminate sad events. So you need a gospel grid to deal with the agonies and adversities of life. Help number seven. God made all things. God made all things. He made some things crooked on purpose. Verse 11. Consider. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The word consider means to think clearly, to process, to contemplate. Or in this case, do not lose sight of the fact that God makes crooked things. Do a sober reflection. Consider the crooked things in life. Many of those are mentioned in this passage. Death, funerals, sorrow, lamenting, sadness. God constructed your life with lots of twists and turns. The crooked places on the road were meant to strengthen your spiritual confidence in Him. Let's just do a mental exercise. I don't want you to say it out loud, but just in your mind. Could you list some crooked things in your life that you wished you had the power to change? What crooked thing would you straighten out if you had the ability? God's strange providence often brings crooked things into your life, and you can respond one of two ways. Option one, you can become fatalistic. Some things are crooked. Some things are straight. It really doesn't matter. There's nothing we can do about it. Option one, you can become fatalistic. Option two, you can become faithful. Whether joy or grief come, laughing or crying, whether the day of birth or the day of death come, whether you're forced to walk crooked paths or straight paths, you see your circumstances in view of the sovereignty of God. He's allowed it. I don't like it. But he's teaching me something in it. I need something in this crookedness for my spiritual development. I need to uncover something about God in this crookedness that is vital for my worship. Now, I haven't lived long, but I I feel like I've lived long enough to know this. Christian saints who go through a lot of pain in life Typically have the highest view of God. Why is that? James 1.2 Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let me substitute a word. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet crookedness of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We need these times. Help number eight. God purposefully ordained good and bad days for your spiritual growth. That's what Solomon says in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. See, Alan Alan Watts, the the Brit who used the Chinese farmer story to, to teach life, he used that story to teach that life really has no singular meaning. It's impossible, he said, to tell what is good and what is bad. But Christianity doesn't agree. There are good days and there are bad days. And you know when you're experiencing a good day or a bad one. The point of this verse is to emphasize that God sends both... Your way. You should receive the days of prosperity and the days of adversity from the hand of God. And each day simply trust the God who holds all of your days. Both prosperity and adversity have their uses in your soul. And the constant fluctuation between them keeps you dependent, not on your own grit to get through them, but on God who sustains you through them. God created the ups and downs of life to stabilize our dependence on him. You don't know what's coming next. You don't know. You're not in charge of what's coming next. But God is. God's hand is as sovereignly involved in the promotions as the demotions. God's hand is as sovereignly involved in the doctor saying, Everything looks perfect as the doctor saying, It's not looking good at all enjoy the good days persevere in the bad days trusting and thanking God in both now that's the eight helps I've got two applications you don't have to work tomorrow these applications will just take another 45 minutes okay that's it two applications application number one let your bad days create a longing for a time when you will never again experience bad days Let your agonies and adversities create in you a longing for a day when you will never experience agonies and adversities again. The Apostle Paul, after dealing with a lifetime of agonies and adversities, the likes of which we will never know, said these words, For I consider the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. (laughs) When your stallion runs away, when your security runs away, your hope runs away, your job runs away, when your leg is broken in three places, your heart is broken in three pieces, and your plans are broken by three people, you hold tightly to Paul's words to a struggling church. Paul's words to individuals who are engulfed in agonies and adversities, he says to them, "Do not lose heart, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." Second Corinthians 4:16. "This promise bears today's date. Do not lose heart. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Application number two. This will be longer. As you experience life's agonies and adversities, do not develop a wrong view of God's sovereignty. As you experience life's agonies and adversities, do not develop a wrong view of God's sovereignty. When we say we believe in God's sovereignty, we mean we believe that he, is, he has complete and total control over everything. You say, well, unpack the word everything. Okay. He has complete and total control over the creative order, the development of history, and the details of life. I'm going to take those one at a time. First, he, has, he is sovereign over the creative order. The, the moon, the stars, the solar systems, all of that. God is sovereign over everything that is above you. God is sovereign over the spheres of the atmosphere. God is sovereign over the troposphere where small planes and small birds fly. He is sovereign over the stratosphere where big jet planes fly. He is sovereign over the mesosphere where meteors burn up. He is sovereign over the thermosphere where satellites hang. So you can have GPS and cell phone. He is sovereign over the exosphere. I don't know what happens there, but he's sovereign over it. And he's ruling. He's sovereign over outer space, over every galaxy. There are billions of them. He's sovereign over the universe, the multiverse, areas we can't even see that will never be discovered. God rules over them in sovereignty. A few years ago, there was a total eclipse. And Hopkinsville was determined to be one of the best places on the planet to view it. They actually renamed Hopkinsville Eclipseville for a day. God reigned sovereignly over that eclipse and every eclipse. R.C. Sproul was famous for saying... If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. What's well, a good thing? He's sovereign over everything over our heads, and He's sovereign over every molecule. So, so God is sovereign over the creative order, but God is also sovereign over the development of history. The rise and fall of nations, kings and queens, elections, all of that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture all of history as a ship sailing through the seas of time. And on that ship are nations, current nations and past nations, every nation that's ever existed, every country that's ever existed. And then I want you to step on the boat. Let's all step on the boat. So we'll sit on the boat. Sit down glance around we see someone dressed as a mountie. Oh that's the country of Canada. Canada's on this ship. So, someone wearing a kilt. Oh that's Scotland. Someone acting very obnoxious and being really loud wearing very bright colors. Oh that's America. <laughs> and at different points along the journey you see these nations fight on the ship. It gets bad at times. You see every nation involved in this. Some nations are being body slammed, eye-poked, beaten. Then you notice some guy over to the side. He's not fighting. He's just sitting down, sipping his tea, remaining neutral. Switzerland is on the ship. (laughs) You see someone dressed like King Tut. Oh, that's ancient Egypt. You see someone wearing a lion hat and lion fur and even lion-skin boots. Oh, that's Babylon. The ancient lion, according to Daniel. All of these nations are existing on the ship at certain times. And at certain times, they're controlling portions of the ship. But there is never a time when any nation is steering the ship. No nation captains the ship. God is the captain of this ship. This ship is history. And God captains it. There may be lots of things that happen on board the ship. But God will bring this thing to its intended port. He will bring it to its shore. A port where people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue will fall down before his feet in worship. So on a macro level and on a micro level, God controls the nations. He reigns sovereignly over them. So God controls the creative order. God controls uh, historical developments, but then this is where we'll put a bow on it. God controls every detail of your life. The details of your life. He is sovereign over the details of your life. Here, here's what I fear, because I know what some of you are going through. In the midst of facing agonies and adversities, you can begin to question God's goodness. How could a good God allow this? And I would just remind you that God is not the author of evil. God created us in a world without adversity or agony. We ruined it through Adam by sinning and opening the floodgates of agony to pour on the human race. God has an active hand and a passive hand. The active hand is where he brings things into your life. The passive hand is where he allows things to come into your life. Ask Job. (laughs) He knew this. He knew the passive hand of God. God allows things into your life that he's not necessarily the author of. And it may be eternity before you can say with Joseph, Satan meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Some of you are asking... How will God make the agony I've experienced right? Does he have a plan? Is anything set in motion? (laughs) Yes. Yes, friends. He he has a plan. 2,000 years ago, he sent his son from the halls of comfort to the halls of agony. He experienced the agony of man. In fact, he faced the most agonizing event in history, the cross where he felt the wrath of man and the wrath of God. Now, why would he do such a thing? To rescue the redeemed, to rescue his chosen, his bride, from a world of sin filled with adversity and agony, bringing them to a world of righteousness filled with peace and comfort. If you're here and you're not a Christian, non-Christian, the agony that you faced on earth is nothing compared to the agony you will face in eternity without Christ. You need to run to this Christ. Christians, I just want to leave you with I just want to leave you with one statement and I'm finished. Events are not falling randomly in your life. God is at work. Thank you for listening to this resource of faith family church.